0: Over the next few weeks, we're focusing on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. These were originally one book telling the story of the people of Israel returning from their exile to rebuild Jerusalem. And the events in these books are drawn out over a 100-year period as they face turmoil, rebellion, and opposition. The return from exile is anything but smooth as the people work hard to restore things to how they once were. These books tell the story of a zealous and passionate people chasing a vision of a renewed community. So as we come to God's word this morning and explore these stories, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we can gather together even in these strange lockdown circumstances to hear your word and Lord, as we look into these uh, books of the Bible that are often neglected, Ezra and Nehemiah, may your spirit speak to us and challenge us as to how we might respond and live faithfully to you in the time and place we are in. Amen. So I want you to have a look at this picture on the screen and just consider it for a moment. I wonder how this little girl's father felt when he saw this. How do you think he responded? How would you respond? Do you think he laughed or do you think he cried? I'm really not sure how I would respond if it was my kids that did this. In some small way, I think this image captures the two sides of Ezra, Nehemiah. One of the key texts in this book is in Ezra chapter 3 that we read earlier, where the temple foundation has been built and the people gather together. It says, No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise. Sometimes in Ezra Nehemiah, it's difficult to distinguish joy from sorrow. It's hard to know whether we're meant to laugh as God's people return to Jerusalem or whether we're meant to cry because the hearts of God's people are still a big mess. Are we meant to shout for joy as God's temple is rebuilt or mourn because God's glory doesn't return to it? Are we meant to be hopeful about this restored remnant of Israel or is our disappointment meant to foreshadow a new work of God? As Ezra Nehemiah opens, Israel has been in exile for about 70 years. Israel's worship and culture has been shaped and altered by years of influence from Babylon and then Persia. What remains of Israelite culture and worship is relegated to pockets of zealous Israelites who have carefully followed the law of Moses in exile and held on to the promises in Jeremiah. Listen to this promise in Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So imagine yourselves in the shoes of Joshua or Zerubbabel, two leaders of the Israelite remnant, when they hear the news that King Cyrus is sending Israel home. Imagine the rejoicing, the delight, the hope. Imagine huddles of Israelites gathering together in Persian homes, dreaming of the future and sharing tales of what once was and what might be again. Yet the task before Israel is immense, maybe more immense than they realize. Because rebuilding the city is one thing, but how will they ensure this new Jerusalem doesn't fall into the same evil and idolatrous ways of the old one? Has anything really changed? So we're focusing on the characters of Joshua and Zerubbabel today. These two men led the first of three expeditions back to Jerusalem. And there's a kind of admirable zealousness as they try to restore Jerusalem to how it was. And the the shadow of King Solomon lies heavily over this story, I think. In these chapters, the leaders of Israel focus on two things, rebuilding the temple and its worship, and keeping the people of Israel pure. It seems that they're trying to restore the good that King Solomon brought, whilst avoiding the mistakes that he made. Much of the description of the rebuilding of the temple mirrors the description of Solomon building his temple in 1 Kings. And so the people, I think, have their eyes fixed on the past, They want to go back to the days of Solomon, to the good old days, to get back to what was. So their first task is to rebuild the temple and reinstate worship. It's commendable that this is their first priority, I think. There's a lovely, faithful recognition that Israel's identity is wrapped up in their relationship with God. There is no Israel without the god who named them but the story of the temple being rebuilt though full of joy and celebration in places is ultimately an anticlimactic story the temple building we find out later in the book of Haggai the temple building itself is quite disappointing The sacrifices offered to dedicate the temple are disappointing in comparison with Solomon's vast offerings. But most sadly, the emptiness of the temple is disappointing. Back when Solomon finished building his temple, something incredible happened. 1 Kings 8 says, When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And his priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. When Solomon built his temple, God filled it. In the most incredible act of love, God came to dwell with his people, to be in their midst. Nothing like that happens with Zerubbabel's temple. I can imagine the remnant of Israel anticipating God's glory filling the temple as they offer sacrifices and sing. But I can't help but imagine there must have been some disappointment when nothing happened. No cloud, no fire, no lightning, nothing. The temple remains an empty husk of a building disappointing inside and out. Israel might have rebuilt God's house, and there might be much to celebrate about that, but God doesn't move back in. Along with building the temple, Joshua and Zerubbabel are determined to uphold the purity of Israel. Throughout the first six chapters of Ezra, Joshua and Zerubbabel are meticulous as they seek to follow the law of Moses. And they're also meticulous about maintaining the ethnic purity of Israel. Chapter 2 gives us this this long list of all the returned exiles and shows how they are descendants of the true Israel. Then in chapter 4, just after the foundation of the temple is built, A group of foreigners from the land around Jerusalem approach the leaders of this remnant and ask if they can help to rebuild the temple too. And they say that's because they worship Yahweh as well. But the leaders of Jerusalem refuse and tell them they can't help because they're not one of them. They are not the true Israel. It's a bit difficult to know what to make of this. Read in our context, this seems very exclusive and graceless. But if we put ourselves in the shoes of the returned exile and understand their concerns about not making the same mistakes Solomon made, maybe their actions are understandable. These foreigners probably worshipped many gods and would bring their idolatry into Israel just as in times gone past, repeating the mistakes of Solomon. But the irony of all of this is that their attempts to create an ethnically and religiously pure Israel also fail miserably. And we'll see more of this over the coming weeks, but when the second expedition arrives, Ezra finds that the remnant of Israel have intermarried with foreign wives and forsaken their worship practices. He then embarks on a crusade of naming and shaming those individuals. In fact, later in Ezra, we can actually read a list of all the people who married foreign wives and then forces them all to divorce their wives, which leads to division and heartache and more failure. And and the leader's actions become more and more extreme as we read on, and I think become quite desperate. By the end of the book. By the end of Nehemiah, we even have leaders literally ripping out people's hair and beating them as punishment for their disobedience. Has anything changed in Jerusalem? The answer by the end of these books is a resounding no. It's difficult to know what to do with Ezra Nehemiah today. It's easy to get lost in the details of building projects and lists and worship practices. But the story of Ezra Nehemiah is the story of a people zealously and passionately pursuing a vision, and despite times of celebration and joy, only to be disappointed time and time again. And by the end of the book, it almost feels like a lesson in futility of a people pursuing the impossible. There's a little bit of Ecclesiastes in this story, like a chasing after the wind of sorts. The final chapter of these books presents us with a downcast Nehemiah lamenting the failed Jerusalem and the messiness of people's hearts. He's faced with the reality that all his efforts to restore Jerusalem have failed, and all he can do is to cry out in God, to God in desperation, remember me, I tried. He comes to a realization that there is no going back, it seems. The, the problem lies in the hearts of people and no amount of rebuilding or liturgy or ethnic purity is going to change that. Building walls is meaningless when the problem is already inside. For Joshua and Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah, they were seeking to be faithful. And I think there is much to commend them for. But their vision of what faithfulness looked like was entrenched in a rigid vision of the past when God had a very different and far more magnificent picture for their future. In their desperation to cling to their plans and dreams, the leaders of this remnant trampled over people and eventually became quite cruel and unwise. What if, rather, they had trusted God's promises and found peace even in what looked like failure to them? What if, rather than trying to force God's promises to come about or conjure a new age of Solomon, They had have trusted God to bring about his promises, even if it wasn't how they expected. What if they had sought to live and build faithfully while being open to the possibility that God's plans might be different to their own? Would they have acted differently? Would they have responded differently to disappointment and feelings of futility? For about 500 years, this second Jerusalem seems to be a failed project. Yes, the temple is rebuilt. Jerusalem is rebuilt. But they're not the same. They're a far stretch from the Jerusalem of Solomon's time. 500 years of sitting with what felt like failure and disappointment, But then something incredible happens. God returns home. We read earlier this passage from John when Jesus enters the temple. To those who sold doves, Jesus said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. In fact, in the Gospels, Jesus spends a significant amount of time teaching in the temple after he has cleansed it of being a greed-filled marketplace. In that moment, Zerubbabel's temple is complete. It is filled again with the glory of God. Zerubbabel's temple becomes the stage where God meets again with his people this time in flesh. The rebuilt city of Jerusalem becomes the stage where God would make a way for hearts to truly be transformed by the work of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The stage where exile really would end as Israel is gathered from the nations and the church is born. See, all along, the returned exiles thought they were rebuilding the age of Solomon when God was doing something far more fantastic. Zerubbabel and Joshua didn't realise, but they were the stagehands preparing the set before the author would step on stage and the beautiful gospel musical would begin. God, in his timing, Proved their faithful work to be anything but futile. Indeed, in Jesus' word, in Jesus, the, the words of Haggai the prophet are fulfilled. Listen to these words that Haggai speaks to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Listen to these words: "The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house," says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace. Joshua and Zerubbabel lived in a unique time in history. However, their story does reflect some ongoing universal insights about what it means to be mere humans dreaming and working and living in the hands of an eternal all-knowing God. Firstly, Ezra Nehemiah invites us to think through how we respond to disappointment and feelings of futility. I was talking to a friend who is an event organizer the other day, and he expressed how he ex- expects his plans to fail because of COVID. Disappointment has become his expectation. And as we look at life 12 months down the line, 12 months on from our last lockdown, we find ourselves back where we started. Maybe we just wish we could go back to what was, to a time before COVID. Or maybe there are times when you look back on your life's work and lament Maybe to your eyes, you feel like a failure. Or perhaps you've been passionately pursuing a vision that's dear to your heart. And at every corner, you seem to meet obstacles that make that energy seem futile. Maybe we look at our church communities and dream of what they might look like and we're disappointed when a year or two later, our communities haven't met our expectations? How will we respond to such disappointment? Will we rigidly hold on to that vision, no matter what, trampling over people in order to succeed? Will we point the finger and blame others out of our own frustrations or insecurities? Or will we recognize that we make our plans and visions with very limited knowledge. What if our great ideas are actually going to cause great heartaches and problems we don't know about? Or what if God is going to use our faithfulness just in ways we don't expect? What if your work or struggle or efforts are going to bear fruit two, five 20, even 100 years down the line? What if they are bearing fruit right now in ways you simply do not know because you are merely human? And this, I think, leads us to a second challenge. We aren't called to make our plans succeed. We are called to be faithful with what we have and in what we know. Zerubbabel and Joshua sought to live faithfully but the acting out of that faithfulness was limited by what they knew. They didn't know that God was going to send his son in flesh to renew people's hearts. Perhaps they had a glimpse of something that God was going to do but they didn't know. They sought to be faithful in the time and place that they lived so too we are called to be faithful with what we have and in what we know. What does it look like to live faithfully to God in this moment in time and in this place? We don't know what the future will bring. We don't know what the world will look like in two years' time, but we can form a community that is ready to offer hope and love to our neighbourhood. And our neighbourhood is going to need that in the years to come. We might be angry and frustrated at government decisions or at people who ignore the rules and put people at risk. But we don't have to let that anger and frustration drive us to be cruel or unkind in the words we speak. We can seek to understand and listen to the anxieties and worries of people and seek the common good. We can't control the outcomes of decisions we make, but we can look at the heart motives driving those decisions and have peace. Even our hopes and plans are offerings presented to God to do with as He will. We need to remain open to the fact that He might change and surprise or even thwart our plans. And when he does so, there's a good reason why. Finally, Ezra Nehemiah challenges us to step out courageously in faith. Disappointment and failure need not scare us if we are seeking to love God. Faithfulness doesn't have to look like success to the world. It doesn't have to look like success in our own eyes. Jesus' faithfulness, as he took his last breath, certainly didn't. Ezra Nehemiah provides encouragement for us to be bold and courageous and to take risks, but also to be humble and at peace when our plans are frustrated. They encourage us to look for God's hand at work in the ordinary stuff of life, not just the miraculous. What will the future bring? Will our dreams be realised? Will we ever get back to what was? We can't answer those questions. But we can see throughout scripture and in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah that God is working in and through the lives of his people to do remarkable and surprising things. They call us to place our work and energy, our little plans and visions into the hands of the one who knows all things and is far wiser than we are. They call us to trust him in the face of disappointment, frustration and futility and to live faithfully in this time we are given. Let's pray. Lord God, we are finite creatures trying to act and make decisions and work and use our energy with very limited understanding. Help us to be realistic about who we are. And help us to rely upon you who are our all-knowing, loving God. Lord, thank you that everything is in your control. That disappointment and frustration need not overwhelm us. Because we know that you are working your plans out and your plans are bigger than we can imagine. Lord, may you help us to remember your word this week as we go about using our energy and living in this world. May you teach us to be faithful in the time and place you've given us. Amen.